Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. As United Nations agencies and international humanitarian NGOs negotiate with the Taliban over their ban on women aid workers, this episode of Talking Humanitarianism features a roundtable discussion on where to draw red lines for humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. This roundtable is the second in a series of discussions on ethics in humanitarian action. Held on 10 February 2023, the roundtable was organised and chaired by Christopher Leden, a researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, who opens the discussion. Welcome everyone to this virtual roundtable where we discuss where to draw red lines for humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. This is a question that has been actualized by the instruction by the Taliban government of the 24th December last year on not allowing women aid workers. But it is, of course, also a question that has been with us for decades, both in Afghanistan and elsewhere. The Taliban statement was later nuanced to allow women health workers and teachers and also supposedly exempted UN agencies, although they also rely on local partners. According to uh, UN OCHA, the Taliban is currently working on more concrete guidelines on this issue. So our discussion today is also relevant for the question of where, what sorts of guidance or guidelines from the Afghan authorities that would be acceptable. So while there is this development, there is still a debate raging within and across humanitarian organizations on exactly how to respond to this situation. Should they suspend their operations in protest or should they try to get as good a deal as possible by collaborating and negotiating. In practice, this question is already reflected in decisions and negotiations across the country, but it remains a question whether organizations should also unite behind a more common stance. This question of red lines is also a deeply political question on how to deal with the Taliban regime in general as international actors whether to recognize it as the legitimate authority of Afghanistan or to seek to undermine its political and military grip. This is the political question of the Taliban. As such, humanitarian arguments intersect with political considerations. But this webinar today is part of a more general exploration of the ethics of humanitarian action and the ethical dilemmas in humanitarian negotiations in particular. Ethics 
is different from humanitarian strategy and from international politics by focusing not on what is best for humanitarian agencies or what leads to the best political results, but what is best for the people affected by the work of the humanitarian organizations. It's about what is morally right and wrong, all things considered. As we will see from today's discussion, there is not a single answer to this question, so ethics doesn't come with an answer. And while some see humanitarian agencies as the quintessence of morality, and it's all about just letting them doing their work, others see them as part of a political problem that requires other solutions than humanitarian action. As such, we come to the question of red lines in humanitarian aid to Afghanistan from a more general perspective on what the aims, roles and principles of humanitarian policies should be in general and how one should relate to situations such as the one in Afghanistan. Currently, countries like Myanmar, North Korea and Syria, perhaps Ethiopia, come to mind, although these are obviously very different uh, settings. And the point would not be to draw conclusions from Afghanistan to Ethiopia, but to help thinking about the relevant arguments, the relevant considera considerations, distinctions that will play out differently in these different cases. So in order to help us thinking about this problem, both relating to Afghanistan, but also reflecting the general questions about red lines in humanitarian action. We have two leading thinkers with practical experience with us to present arguments for and against halting humanitarian aid in Afghanistan. First, we have Dr. Hugo Slim, who's a senior research fellow at the Las Casas Institute at Blackfriars Hall at the University of Oxford and is also an associate of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict at the Blavatnik School of Government. Slim was the head of policy and humanitarian diplomacy at the National Committee of the Red Cross and he has also worked as a frontline humanitarian in different settings. Holding a PhD in Humanitarian Studies from Oxford Brookes University, his most recent books are Solferino 21, Warfare, Civilians and Humanitarians in the 21st Century, and Humanitarian Ethics, a Guide to the Morality of Aid in War and Disaster, that both speak directly to this question. Second, we are so fortunate to have Mukesh Kapilav with us, CBE and trained as a medical doctor, Kapila works as a professor of global health and humanitarian affairs at the University of Manchester and is a special representative of the Aegis Trust for the Prevention of Crimes Against Humanity. Amongst his many previous positions, he has been the Undersecretary General for National Society and Knowledge Development at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Kapila is the author of two books about genocide, against a tide of evil and no stranger to kindness. And he has also engaged in this question of uh, whether to halt or not aid to Afghanistan as, as well as a lot of other questions on his blog and on various other um, sites. Then we are so privileged to also have with us Fatima Gailani, with a long-standing background as political leader and human rights activist in Afghanistan. 
She was president of the African Red Question Society between 2005 and 16, and is still on their board. And she has participated in negotiations with the Taliban. She also has multiple other roles of relevance to this debate. Gailana will share some introductory reflections on Slim and Kapila's arguments before we open the floor for discussion. My name is Christophe Leden. I'm a researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. And my background is in philosophy and ethics. And this webinar is organised by the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies in collaboration with PRIO, the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, and the Institute for International Law, Peace and Armed Conflict at Ruhr University Bochum. And while it's not explicitly in their title, all these three institutes also do terrific work on humanitarian action and policy. Finally, just before we start, I would like to commemorate the victims of the terrible earthquake in Turkey and Syria that just happened this week, also given the topic of our roundtable. And with this, I'd like to give the word to you, Hugo, please. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you, Priyo, and thank you, Elek, for organizing it. It's also a pleasure to be arguing with Mukesh. Um, Mukesh is one of the rare individuals who's really made a truly global contribution to humanitarian aid in his career, both from the British government and the UN, and then in his, his teaching and um, advocacy life. It's also lovely, actually, to see other people here. It's lovely to see Fatima here, who I used to know from my Red Cross days. And it's lovely to see Temriz here from Karachi as well. And of course, it's lovely to see some um, old Geneva friends as well, although they're probably frenemies rather than just simple friends now because what I'm what I'm saying. But it's great to see you too. So let me start by acknowledging that this is an extremely serious topic. And I understand very much that lives and families are at stake when we discuss it. And what I'll try and do is give four main reasons um, why I think um, international donors and agencies should think really seriously about an exit of some kind. Um, and then I will also give what I see as a, a possible way forward. But first, I need to address an elephant in the room. Because, of course, I am, it seems, at a major disadvantage because I have never been to Afghanistan. So I do not understand Afghanistan. And this, of course, is probably true. But I would like to see this actually as an advantage as well, because it means that I look on Afghanistan from Oxford and I do not share the 30 year accumulated mindset that comes with a lot of Afghan policy and a lot of Afghan humanitarianism. I don't share the entrenched thinking of the Afghan set. And so in some ways, perhaps I'm a frog on the outside of the boiling pot, and I may be watching frogs inside the pot, quite happy getting warmer and hotter, doing more deals with the Taliban, more compromises, cutting the kebab or the salami ever shorter in their deals, over immoral policy. And maybe I'm a frog on the outside saying 
it's getting really hot in there and I think you should probably start getting out. So I hope there is some advantage in having never been to Afghanistan. First, I want to give my reasons and my reasons are not really to do with the ban on women in humanitarian agencies, as Christopher was saying. My reasons are on the much wider ban on women and girls per se. So let me give my four reasons. The first one is, in my view, the exceptional nature of the Taliban's policy to persecute women as women, to persecute women for being women, for massive human rights violations in their policy, to effectively deprive women of education, of jobs, of the fulfillment of their full humanity as human beings and to deprive them of access and freedom to public space. And this is evident in, you know, of the 88 edicts of this emir, we have seen 55 with negative consequences for women. And in my view, this is a widespread crime against humanity, women's humanity and it affects 50% of the population. And this must continue to be called out and described for what it is by the international organizations and the governments around them. And in my view, by the United Nations and others. It cannot be compromised with. And if this were any other group, that was being persecuted like this, if it were Muslims, if it were Hindus, if it were Jews, if it were men, if it were children who were being banned from public space, deprived of education, deprived of the freedom to have a livelihood, deprived of their humanity, I have a feeling we would be in a different discussion. So I'm not a cultural relativist on this problem. I don't say, oh, you know, this is how the Afghans are. I think my form of ethics is that there are things which are absolutely wrong for a Pathan and for an Englishman. And this is one of them. You cannot persecute women in this way. So that's my first reason. I think this is a really extreme and exceptional case and we cannot start slicing the salami or the kebab on this issue. Secondly, my second reason is about propping up the Taliban's status quo. We all know humanitarians always work under wicked regimes with an inevitable element of complicity. Complicity at one end of the spectrum, we give them recognition, we cooperate with them, we show them obedience and we compromise with them. That is being complicit on a certain level of the spectrum. But when our aid system is so big as it has become over 20 years of phenomenal financing in Afghanistan, this limited complicity can go too far and become much more substantive contribution to propping up that regime. And I think that's what we're seeing potentially in Afghanistan again. This aid funded welfare system, which effectively props up 
bad and negligent government. Aid contributions to a Taliban criminal status quo that are vital and substantive, not simply incidental. So what I'm arguing is that the, the significance of international aid's contribution to propping up the Taliban's criminal uh, government is too much now. It has to be reduced, whatever happens. It's not just an incidental contribution to their governments. It props them up and does their work for them. So aid's embedded function in health, education, food is now too big and it's a substantive contribution to um, complicity in my view enabling that government to enact all sorts of appalling legislation so it gives a sort of welfare gives a buffer between the taliban government and its and the kandahar group and its citizens and that buffer the Taliban does not deserve. It needs to have its citizens facing it directly and challenging their responsibility for the conditions they are in. So that brings me to the third question about what about the people? Because of course my, my argument is apparently astoundingly inhumane because it seems I don't care about people who are not going to have health services, not going to have food. And here to start with, I am suspicious from a distance of the great catastrophic narrative of international humanitarians. Six million people on the verge of famine, 98% of the country living under poverty, catastrophe round the corner. I'm suspicious of this. This is a 2030 year aid machine we're talking about, and the Afghan aid machine needs needs. It has a 20 year momentum, a 20 year habit, a 20 year way of working, and it needs to prove the needs to keep that machine going. And I may be very, very wrong here, but I suspect it is exaggerating. So I think more space should and can be given for the poverty that exists to challenge the Taliban as responsible and not challenge the international aid system as responsible. So I think this is another reason for international aid to get out of the way and step out of that buffer between Taliban rule and people's suffering. The, th the, the, the fourth reason I give is about global impartiality and political responsibility. There are, and, and Mukesh knows this really well because he expanded and managed the British aid budget. There are limited aid budgets and many needs. Therefore, there is a question in this issue, not just about Afghanistan, but about global distributive justice. Western governments can choose other crises and they may have an obligation to prioritize other crises. So we have to look at global fairness is what I'm saying. There are also 
many other significant powers in this region, massive powers like China, India, Pakistan, Iran, and interested powers that are extremely rich like Qatar. They too have political and humanitarian responsibility and human rights responsibility. And it may well be that in this region, they are the people that should lead on these questions. And the West has been defeated in Afghanistan by the Taliban. It should probably now retreat in all ways, including its aid money, and look to others in the region, in the political neighborhood, to take responsibility. So it, in my view, looking at places like East Africa, the new earthquake, earthquake catastrophe in Turkey, um, the deteriorating situation in West Africa, there are many other legitimate calls on Western aid finance and Western budgets, Western politicians are morally entitled to choose. And that just leaves the question of so-called residual obligations. The question of, but like many of you, have really close relationships with people you've been working with for decades here. What are those bonds mean? What does the fact that, you know, the West and Western money invaded Afghanistan, attacked its people, killed its people, created much of this instability with the Taliban? What obligation does that leave? Special obligations of repair? My view is that these these do not hold at the moment because you should not have to ask someone to repair something in a context which is fundamentally breaching a core moral value, which is the equal rights of women and female humanity. So in my view, those obligations are cut by the outrageous, wicked, anti-women policies of the Taliban. So in the last two minutes, just a way forward. My view of the way forward is we need to reframe this crisis. There's too much leftover war mentality, military war humanitarianism thinking. This is not a war. It is now a human rights emergency for women and a state of chronic poverty for the country. Humanitarian aid is not the right tool. Much better would be that donor governments find new ways of working with progressive national and local organizations and good, solid, respected organizations like the Afghan Red Crescent. And my view is that we need to dismantle the global war on terror, humanitarian, industrial project, whatever people want to call it, dismantle that international model and its infrastructure and its habits and create new, much more developmental, supportive, catalyzing um, aid so that it is not business as usual. So I hope this gets us started. Thanks a lot, Hugo. And I will now pass the word directly to you, please, Mukesh Kapila. Thank you, Christopher, and thank you, Hugo, and good to see uh, many friends, uh, old and new. I think uh, uh, what we are not uh, disagreeing on here is that the Taliban policy is uh, indefensible, terrible, uh, it is certainly exceptional on a global uh, level of uh, spectrum of uh, horrors, even, and uh, it is not dis it is not a matter of dispute that uh, it is wrong and unacceptable. That's not an issue. The question is what to do about it, uh, uh, really. Well, for me, 
uh, I come from a, a, a kind of a health background, and so that's inevitably uh, distorted my uh, perspective on on uh, policy making. So I'm going to come at this from the angle of uh, policy making, partly actually from uh, having been in government where uh, your sole job is to make difficult policy decisions which will please half the people and, and annoy the other half. And then secondly, uh, it comes to the perspective of having been inside Afghanistan on different in reincarnations, first uh, uh, head, heading the British aid operations there, then as special advisor to UNAMA when Brahimi was uh, uh, SRSG, and uh, then in Red Cross, uh, uh, Red Crescent days, and having actually negotiated uh, as Antonio and so on will know when I came across him uh, with uh, Taliban 1.0 in uh, Kandahar in the early days when we went through some of the same arguments uh, before many uh, in the last millennium. So my approach to difficult uh, policy making questions is uh, the first question is, is my proposed policy going to be effective? So if my intention is to get uh, these uh, terrible Taliban to change their uh, mind by taking away my uh, aid ball uh, and play elsewhere and leaving them bereft, and this is somehow going to make them come uh, back to a kind of more sensible path. Uh, the the uh, certainly my political analysis, and I'm another more expert on this even uh, now, um, is that it ain't going to work because when you are when you are theologically inspired, when your dogma comes from God uh, themselves, uh, then uh, you are beyond this kind of uh, uh, reasoning. So just withdrawing aid is uh, literally. A, a, a kind of just a huff. You're just going off in a going off in a huff, and it's not going to make any difference on Taliban uh, policy because uh, they are motivated by different divine considerations in the warped theology, and uh, and to me, uh, making an ineffective policy is uh, immoral policy making. And I've come across that in my governmental and institution roles, where you take and you make policy based on some rational principle, even science perhaps, and you find it doesn't work, and you left uh, the, uh, you know your constituency even worse off than before. And if you make policy on that on that basis, whether you run a government, whether you run an institution, or whether uh, you are a uh, influencer, then uh, quite honestly, you don't deserve to be in that particular uh, uh, role. Uh, a policy that is going to be fail is a policy that is a wrong policy and uh, and uh, that wrong policy is therefore an immoral policy, unethical policy when it when it comes to matters that affect people's life and death. That's why I think all the great and the good who made um, made uh, rabid speeches and said uh, we are stopping aid, there were a great gesturing going on there. But fundamentally, uh, it's a policy, it's a bankrupt policy. So for me, uh, I don't take much uh, of that. The second obvious thing is uh, is uh, that uh, is a policy going, is a policy proportionate? So I'm just giving you another example. When I was the UN uh, resident humanitarian coordinator in the Sudan, uh, I was faced with the problem. Uh, uh, we had female genital cutting in a swath of uh, North Africa, as you, as you know. And the issue was around our uh, family health and women's health programs. 
do we, as some of my uh, activist uh, colleagues were suggesting, uh, suspend uh, uh, all healthcare assistance for um, uh, women's health programs because government-sponsored hospitals allowed female genital cutting to take place. And so their idea was that we all, uh, female genital mutilation or cutting is immoral. Who can disagree with that? I totally uh, agree with that. And in order to show our disapproval, we should stop assisting. We should withdraw all our humanitarian assistance and uh, medical assistance to women in the Sudan. I mean, clearly, you know, even a modicum of a, of a, of a sense would would suggest that this is just would be an idiotic proposition, whatever positioning the activists wanted to, to take. And by the way, because if you were to ask people who I am, most people would know me by my human rights work nowadays, not my uh, humanitarian uh, work. And I annoy people quite a lot on that basis more than anything else. Now, so the, the point here was that, you know, Stopping all female sexual reproductive health to all the women of the Sudan just because female genital mutilation was carrying being carried on government health institutions would be like throwing the baby out with the with the bathwater. So similarly, it's idiotic to say that oh, just because the Taliban are creating mayhem uh, in all this, uh, we should stop uh, uh, providing help to whoever and wherever we can provide help to in uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, I think uh, this aid withdrawal policy is disproportionate and therefore it is immoral and unethical. My third uh, kind of uh, argument uh, would be that has uh, have the uh, subjects of this policy of policy continuing aid or withdrawing aid. Have they been consulted? I mean, you know, here coming from a, a medical background, one of the things we are taught is, uh, and especially having been medically educated in the, the in an in elite institution like Oxford, where we used to treat our patients like some kind of interesting medical puzzles rather than anything else, is that you have to consult the patient before you administer that uh, cancer drug that is going to make all their hair drop out and worse and prolong their life by 10 minutes, uh, you know, to see whether or not we should do something now uh, and uh, you know in the humanitarian business we are all about uh, all about participation consulting listening all that blah blah that is going on in the humanitarian uh, business and the decolonization uh, movement right well has anybody actually asked the women of uh, of uh, in afghanistan and i don't mean the elite women uh, most of whom are abroad nowadays anyway from where they can tweet on like high tweet on all the all these things i'm talking about ordinary uh, women in villages and towns in kandahar and harat and all the other places which i know extremely well from my travels around uh, uh, around afghanistan you see have them been consulted do they want all aid suspended for their fathers and mothers, children and daughters uh, and their communities just because they can't go, uh, they can't go to go to work. You know, uh, do they, I mean, this would be literally like, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your uh, face if we were to consult these people to say so. Now, I have actually consulted these women, not uh, in, uh, in, in, in this case, but in the past when I was faced a similar dilemma. Do we suspend all education aid to uh, Taliban uh, to schools in Afghanistan just because uh, they would only educate uh, boys? And when the women told me 
uh, when I consulted them that, uh, no, please, please, for God's sake, uh, you know, our, our, our boys are growing up like the Taliban. We want them educated. And no, we don't want them educated by the Qataris and the and the Pakistanis and uh, all the rest of the rest of them who have created the problem in the first place with the, with their with their version of education with under Taliban one point Taliban one point zero. I'm here, here, here talking about. Uh, if you like to see, please carry on. And uh, uh, and uh, we know that uh, many of the women actually uh, were supported to do uh, homeschooling and many 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 things. So absolutely not. I would say if you were to do a poll of uh, of uh, women in Afghanistan, you would find that a very tiny minority would say, "Please suspend all aid just to show your solidarity." There are many ways of showing solidarity. But this is just a gesture by Western, Northern, often Scandinavian, I'm sorry to say, uh, you know, um, uh, and uh, woke uh, warriors, uh, as opposed to asking the people. And I'm very confident uh, on that. Maybe some uh, somebody can actually do the research on that. My fourth argument is that uh, we uh, have to be consistent in our approach. Now, I know perfectly well, having worked in the humanitarian system in the UN, in the Red Cross movement, as well as in other ways as a donor, is one thing you can be certain of is that humanitarians are not consistent. You can be sure, as we're seeing now, for example, many of these humanitarian agencies who were ranting and raving from the parapets when the first edicts came out, they sneaked back in. You know, they're quietly working away because they knew what we all know that the Taliban have not been to um, uh, MBA courses. They have not been, they've not, thank God, the management capacities are weak. They have not had the capacity built. And so, you know, you go to different parts of Taliban, uh, Taliban you go to different districts of, of Afghanistan, you'll find different practices. And Taliban, uh, and I'm no love lost for them, let me, let me assure you, um, uh, you know, uh, there are very clever ways of getting around them. And, uh, and there's a lot of diversity that is taking place. So many of, the, many of them, you see this from the public pronouncements uh, of, the, of the great and good humanitarian agencies, they're, you know, they're, they're going back, working here, working there, finding ways and so on and so forth. And the Red Cross, Red Crescent never withdrew, uh, and rightly so. Uh, I would have been deeply offended if they had, if they, if they had, and uh, and the UN agencies who were not directly targeted by this particular policy have quietly uh, moved on. And I'm speaking to a World Food Program colleague only recently, and uh, he was uh, telling me what the shenanigans they're getting up to to uh, to keep working. So we don't have a consistent approach, and the Taliban are stupid. You know, they know that uh, the divide and rule which the humanitarians themselves have within their own empire. Uh, and is exploitable by, by 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 others, and I've seen this elsewhere in Ethiopia and 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 such like. That uh, the the morality and the ethical argument falls away when we behave immorally and unethically, and there are no red lines anywhere because we are crossing the red lines all the time, everywhere. Now maybe it's time to make a stand. But uh, what I would argue is that I don't understand the moral or ethical basis of um, making a moral stand 
uh, on the bodies of the weakest people on the planet. If you want to make a moral and ethical stand, you know, at least pick a, pick a target your size. Uh, you know, don't go for those who cannot speak. Those who are uh, often uh, uh, the weakest, they're not the weakest, they're the strongest in many ways because they survive, but very often, uh, you know, they are in weak, they are in weak position. And, you know, so we can battle and um, battle for our principles and our morality and our ethics and posture, uh, you know, on the global uh, uh, level because you don't have the courage to actually take a red line uh, where actually there's a risk to us and so on. Finally, just to refute one or two uh, arguments of my friend uh, 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 Hugo. Uh, firstly, uh, I, uh, I, being a humanitarian does not mean that we cannot speak up when we see something going wrong on. I know there are some cowardly humanitarians. In fact, uh, many cowardly humanitarians in a humanitarian system, many of them are, are leaders of uh, important humanitarian organizations and have very little respect left for them. And they say, oh, no, no, our access will be reduced. So uh, we will not say this, we will not say that. And, and those are the real colluders with uh, evil policies because they don't speak up. In my experience, and the more you speak up, the more you take a consistent position, the more you win the right to speak up and the more you have access. At least that's what I found in my life as a humanitarian coordinator, as well as a, as a, as a senior official of the, of, of the Red Cross, because people respect you. And then they say, OK, we know where your position is. I don't agree with your position, but we respect that position. It doesn't stop us from cooperating in this particular in this particular way. So the issue is about collusion and not colluding with authorities is entirely self-made by the humanitarians. It is not intrinsic to the situation we find ourselves in. Now, Talking about global distributive justice, uh, uh, an extremely good point, but tell me one formula by which you would distribute humanitarian assistance in a fair manner. It does not exist. There are many technocratic formula. Uh, most of them are in, in uh, OCHA's uh, uh, computer systems uh, when they do their, their, uh, their kind of mathematics, uh, which produces these interagency appeals. And you look at the last appeal, it tells us how many billions are needed, but only for 250 million people. Well, what happens to the remaining 750 million that are not even counted? So let alone get into the and into the into the fields. In any case, what happens to those? And of course, they'll only get half the money, which means other half going to die. No, of course, they are not. So my point here is totally agree in global distributive justice and uh, and and fairness, and we need to improve on that one particular way. But that will happen more once we have a consistent approach to these issues as opposed to selectively doing our battles, usually in places where we can't lose. You know, there is there is no moral courage in condemning the uh, in condemning uh, the Taliban. There's no moral courage required in condemning the Taliban. Why? Because it's a popular thing to do. Everyone in the world is condemning the Taliban. You know, why don't you also? It requires no courage. It requires far more greater courage to stand up against the mainstream and and, and take a position. And I don't think humanitarians do that. So in my question, in my conclusion, finally, uh, as I should shut up now before I get too carried away, um, uh, 
I think the, uh, the way the humanitarian uh, community is responding by taking away the humanitarian ball is not just uh, cruel, it is ineffective, and most of all, it is immoral and unethical. And it brings the whole system into disrepute as far as the global system is concerned, and therefore its impact will be felt elsewhere. I think it's disgraceful. Thank you so much. That was very comprehensive uh, given your limited time. And I'll now pass the word directly to uh, Fatima Gailani, please. Um, first of all, I want to uh, start by remembering the earthquake uh, victims. I know how it is um, to be in their uh, place. And uh, good afternoon to colleagues, friends, old friends and new friends. 45 years of sheer misery for Afghanistan and pushing Afghanistan in a, in a situation which was not our own. We are the victim of Cold War. We were used time and time again. Everyone passed neighbors, region, superpowers. They had a hammer in their hand and they hit it on our head. Where was the morality at that time? I worked in Afghanistan. I worked as the spokesperson of the Afghan freedom fighters, the Mujahideen against Soviet Union. And at that time, <clears throat> being in my mid twenties, I believed that the world see the difference between right and wrong. And very soon I realized that it is just slogans. They need you, they use you and they will forget you. When I come to the last 20 years, I absolutely resent when I see that everything happening in Afghanistan regarding women, they give the credits for the last 20 years. Last month, I became 69. I was only eight when I saw the first women ministers. I was only eight when I saw in an open competition, not in a quota system, women being elected. The right to vote before Switzerland for men and women of Afghanistan came the same day. I was a child that I could see that as if it is a matter of life and death to my mother to hire buses and put women uh, to go vote for these women. Uh, so we will have a word there. Where was the world at that time? It was an Afghan um, progress which was happening. But what happened? Coups after coups. Who helped President Dawood to dismantle when we had the best prime minister who had the best Western education plus uh, a degree from Al-Azhar University? It was a coup which happened. We all know who did it and how it happened. When I see arguments like uh, Hugo did, I understand it. I understand the fatigue, I understand the frustration. And if you think that just Taliban think that way, think twice, because I was a commissioner in the new constitution of Afghanistan. I had 
people paid by the um, um, the Western countries, and they would come and argue with us. One of them had told me that, how could you even think that a Shia and Sunni will be the same? And this was only in Islam. People would come and tell me, how do you think? You are different. You are, you are so-and-so's daughter. But how could you think men and women should be the same and equal in an article in this constitution? They were not Taliban. They were people paid, hired by the government of the transition government, which President Karzai was on top of it. So this is not new for Afghanistan. Today, I'm among very rare women that I come and go inside Afghanistan. I had my meeting with women of Afghanistan. Mukesh, you said it. I never say anything unless I ask those people who are in danger and who, who, who tell me. I had first, my first trip, I had a meeting of women in, in Kabul. You're absolutely right. Those well-known women are all gone out of the country. But we still have educated women inside the country. We have professors, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have social workers. They are equal to any one of us outside the country. The second trip I, I uh, invited more than 20 people, 20 women uh, from all over Afghanistan. And again, I knew only two, one a former employee of the Red Crescent and one socially I knew. I asked them that how, how do they feel? The first thing they said that you don't know us because we were not activists, we were professionals. We were professors, we were doctors, nurses, teachers, and we never bothered because we had those activists. And where are those activists today? They run away with first, uh, I mean, wind of danger. They all left the country and they left us alone. And this time we are not going to rely upon them. So in Afghanistan, we have more than uh, 16 million, 17 million women. Are we able to take all women outside Afghanistan? Ahlan sahlan, do, do that. Please do it tomorrow. Is it possible? Maybe Afghanistan doesn't deserve to have women in it. But it is an impossibility. We have to, we have to stay there and insist and insist and insist until things goes right. Recognition or not recognition, Afghanistan, as much as it hurts uh, an ordinary Afghan people, it has a procedure. No one, even those women inside the country or men inside the country, will want Afghanistan to be recognized without those procedures, without those things that we heard in Qatar and it was signed and it was promised to be fulfilled. But just think. Mukesh, you know that we had this program of uh, ch children born with a heart defect uh, and the Red Crescent was looking after them and entirely by Afghan money. From the baker to a back taxi driver, they would put money um, that three, $3 million we needed to send these children. They will all die. 
they will all die not because we don't have the money. They will all die because they can't travel somewhere. I personally know 16 young people that they had cancer, they died because they couldn't go get outside the country to, uh, to seek uh, uh, their treatment. If I sit here and talk to you about the miseries I saw with my own eyes, it is not that poor who has become poor. We all knew that they were poor people in Afghanistan. Even with trillions of money was coming, there wasn't school for girls and boys in the whole of Afghanistan. No one opened their mouths to say, why can't we do peace with Taliban? What this negotiation which started in Doha so late, why didn't it start? Why everyone was silent? Why didn't it start at the beginning? Where was the morality at that time? So today, when I saw the middle class, the newly merging middle class of Afghanistan is in a state of poverty. And they are embarrassed to ask for food for their children. They don't have food for their children because they lost jobs or whatever happened. What happened in the negligence which happened in Afghanistan in the 20 years of trillions of money coming, if it was in a, in, in, in a company, people would have been imprisoned. People would have been, I mean, gone to jail or whatever. They would have been asked. Nothing was asked. Millions and millions of money were stolen by those people who were supposed to be the custodian of that uh, safeguarding of that money. Where was the morality at that time? Actually, those people were the limelight of any political movement. Why? You paid the money. Why didn't you ask for it? So today, the country is hurting. Hugo, I do understand the frustration. I am a woman. I was born and brought up in Afghanistan. But I agree with uh, Mukesh that being there, present there, being with people and insisting on those important issues is the only way. Engagement is the only way. If, you, if it was a government who would have thought that why people are hungry or it is important that people should not be hungry and all that and cared in a way, yes, they would have said, oh, they are leaving now. How would I feed the people? No, no, no. These people are the reality of Afghanistan today. They are there. The country is for the first time after 45 years in one hand. There, there is a responsibility to do things which is right. I, as an Afghan woman, I, I invest on that little door that what they say about closure or uh, they say it is suspended. It is not totally banned. I am dwelling on that to open it. When I was a peace negotiator in Doha, Every day we had four or five at least, and we had to split, um, I mean, Zoom call 
and the offer of help from the Western world, all over, all over, as far as Australia. One from Pakistan, a Muslim country. One from Indonesia, a Muslim country. Not a word. And today we need them because the closure of the school for women is against Islam. If we talk Islam and Sharia, on one hand, God, in my holy book, chooses to say, Iqra, the first order, read, learn the art of writing. And on, on the other hand, someone comes and closes the school to me. What is the difference between this or shoving food in my mouth when I'm fasting or when I'm praying to stand in front of me? None. But where is the Muslim voice? Where are they? Why this double standard? So I, I want to make it short. I strongly believe, and this is not my message. This is the message of men and women, and especially the young generation of Afghanistan. For God's sake, don't leave us alone. Two. Everything, as Mukesh said, you said, renew, renew that uh, same thing, that what is wrong, what is right. I believe that today's Afghanistan needs, well, Afghanistan probably all the time needed um, out of the box um, approach. We need to properly uh, look into Afghanistan. The languages, tribalism, even within the Pashtuns, one tribe and the other. All this needs a proper, uh, proper um, study. Unfortunately, we don't have time. We have to, uh, to go quickly and fix these things. But if uh, one sentence with a big uh, line under it, engagement, engagement and insisting upon the values. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing this. And at this point, I will uh, open up uh, the, the floor for discussion. OK, thanks very much, Christopher. Just cut me off whenever you need to, because this is a very uh, passionate subject for me as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, um, for your views. I just like to very quickly comment um, with three perspectives. One, as a global development professional and women's rights activist that I've been for the last 30 years. Secondly, as a woman myself. And thirdly, and here is the very, I guess, complicated part, as a Pakistani. So I am a neighbor to Afghanistan. I have worked with Afghan refugees in Karachi. Um, I interact with them. Uh, have over the years. I am fully aware of the responsibility that my country has in where Afghanistan is today, which makes this issue much more complicated than it actually is. Um, but I think on a development level and professional level, I just like to first raise a couple of points very quickly. One, I think it is we need to differentiate between um, development aid and humanitarian aid. As a professional who's worked in both areas, I think those are two very different things. 
And I think development aid has shown its failures, its abject failure and its culpability in where Afghanistan stands today, not just Afghanistan, you know, many countries of the global south. Um, and humanitarian aid, I think, is a non-negotiable to me, whereas development aid, you can perhaps make an argument to end it. I know that's my line now after having experienced the sector for so long. Uh, secondly, I think the whole idea that, Hugo, you raised the point that Afghanistan perhaps moved to more legitimate cases around the world. I think, I mean, I would vociferously um, sort of, you know, object to that because how do you decide what case of humanitarianism is legitimate and what is not? I think ethically and morally, that's just a question you don't ask. Every case is important. And in Afghanistan's case, uh, like Fatma Khanum says, you've it's been over 40 years. We're not talking about something that's just happened a few days ago. We're talking about 40 years of pain and hardship. So I think keeping that in perspective, as well as the history, the geopolitical history of the country, I, I think the idea of ending aid is not just immoral, but I think it doesn't match the humanitarian ethos. Because we all talk about, you know, having to be there, having to assist people. It's all about saving lives. Well, I mean, you still have to save a lot of lives in Afghanistan. You can't just get up and go. But I would also like to raise the issue that Fatma Khanum also raised about the Muslim voice. And I speak here now as a Muslim and as a Pakistani. We have been complicit in the situation in Afghanistan for decades. Um, many of us do not accept that. I do. Um, the fact that our silence and our complicity, our political complicity, um, has led to the situation where it is today is not just something that we see in Afghanistan, it's something we see in Pakistan as well. We're going towards that direction, you know, very quickly. So putting ourselves into that position, we don't want to be in that position. I mean, if somebody turned around and told us, well, you know, we're just going to leave right now and leave you in this abject misery, <clears throat> how would you feel? How would Ukraine feel? If you know you said, I'm sorry, this is between you and Russia. We have absolutely want to have nothing to do with it. We're leaving. But I think the whole Muslim question is very important. As Muslim countries, we have not done enough. I know Hugo has been very vocal about this, and I completely agree with that. But I think there's a lot of history and politics behind that as well. Uh, but I absolutely agree that we need to do more, much, much more. And I think that might be the solution we're looking for to oppose Western imperialism and hegemony, as has been the case for 40 years. So very quickly, I would, it's not a black and white issue, but if you want to make it black and white, I would go for uh, Mukesh's side. You cannot abandon Afghanistan. You cannot. We as Pakistanis have abandoned Afghanistan. And I mean, look at the state we're in. You just cannot do that. So I'll stop right there because um, I saw Christopher's time out. So yes. sorry, sorry for giving you so short time. Thanks so I'd like that. to give Thanks. everyone the chance. So uh, Francois Greenwald, please, and uh, please also introduce yourself. Good afternoon to all. Do you hear me well? I am in Central Republic of Africa, so the connection might not be too good. Thanks for uh, all the, the uh, previous speakers and. Uh, I like both the, the, the two types of hangers, uh, the one of uh, Hugo, who talks about high principles, and the one of uh, Mukesh, who talks about we cannot just leave them alone. And uh, I think we have uh, those, those two angles to be reconciled around a global strategy. How do we make that change? How do we make sure that uh, at the end, uh, the women get access to jobs, the, 
the, the schools, etc., and, and the tactical element, how do we make sure that we find the right way? For those of us who have been working during the Taliban in the uh, previous period, in the 80, early 90s, mid 90s, 96, after the, I was in Kabul when the Taliban took over Kabul. Uh, and it's very interesting because if we look at that from an historical point of view, in Afghanistan, you have the two strengths, uh, very reactionary and, the, and some very progressive and some in the middle. So I think if we leave everything, we, we leave the door, uh, the floor only to the uh, regressive part, the most uh, regressive component. If we manage to keep a presence there and some action there, we might identify who are the semi-progressive or more progressive and see how we can get things moving. During the Taliban, after, after they took over Kabul in 96, it was very difficult, but we managed to open significant doors, including for uh, women to go to school, for women doctors or nurses to do the work, while at the beginning it was a bit uh, blocked. So I think we have to find ways, keeping in mind the, uh, the terrible uh, element of the current situation, but trying to find what could be the tactics that will help us to maneuver around it. It's not relief, uh, releasing our, our, our um, ethic. It's not a release of our principle. It's trying to find the right way. Could it be by bringing millions of uh, e-tablets for, for and develop a sophisticated e-learning process? Maybe that could be through that kind of way. Could it be through a significant piece of work with a, a wife of Taliban explaining why the health is in danger if they don't have access to properly trained Afghan medical doctors and nurses. So I think we have to be uh, much more astute than getting away and saying, okay, we wash our hands, that's a problem, we hate them, and that's finished. We have to find, of course, with some principles, but we have to explore all the possible avenues that will help us and, and help the Afghan women to go back to the level of dignity and empowerment they managed to have in the last few years. So I think we have to be I think, much more creative than black and white. We have to identify all the possible gray avenues that will help us maneuver into that and, uh, and be utterly smart. Of course, this will pass through, yeah, and just to conclude, this will pass to two ways, a high level of consultation, which means we will have to send much more women humanitarian workers and a, quite a smart negotiation process with the Taliban, with the male components. So let's be smart. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Excellent. And uh, we, we now heard from Tamriz Khan, who's an independent development professional and author also, and just uh, published a book on white saviorism in international development, uh, relevance to the topic. And uh, Francois, uh, you're uh, the Director of Strategic Foresight at URD, which I found out is standing for Urgency, Rehabilitation, Development. And uh, from now on, I'll uh, invite the speakers to introduce themselves just with affiliation. So Alistair Gordon-Gibson, please. Thank you uh, for the very passionate presentations. Uh, and all of them have, in my opinion, their own very strong moral position. The question for me, 
and to introduce myself, I, I'm now an academic with working with the University of St Andrews, studying uh, international relations and particularly issues around the humanitarian identity and conflict and, and crisis. Um, but I have spent 25 years working on the field, mainly with the Red Cross, the Red Crescent movement. So I, I'm approaching my own research now with that background, and I hope I hope it'll be relevant because um, you know th this is this dilemma, this compromise. Uh, this, yeah, this this dilemma, uh, moral dilemma, is nothing new. Of course, one of my earliest interventions on the field was in Goma in 1994 following the massacres in Rwanda that um, that year. And the, the great debate amongst us then was, um, you know, should we stay assisting uh, 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 what was in effect a community that included um, the people who had perpetrated the genocide? And, and this was the big debate then. And I think only one agency at the time did decide to withdraw, and that was MSF France. Um, so, my question in my research is, is there a middle ground? There is no black and white answer, as, as everybody, I think, has concluded. But is there a middle ground? And, and my conclusion is that there is um, a, a, a space, a new kind of space or humanitarian space that will allow the humanitarian to be present, but also to distance themselves quite well from these moral uh, moral dilemmas. Um, you know, it's a space where you know social anthropologists have defined it academically and uh, culturally as a space where one can belong uh, and not belong, a, a liminal space. Because it's not a humanitarian option uh, to do evil so that good may come. So we need to have a space where we can remain engaged. And this was the word that I think. Uh, Fatima Galani included with him, it's important to remain engaged, but where red lines, clear red lines can be drawn and where the participants in this space have the right to challenge and contest authority. One common theme coming through all of us in the, the speeches, and there is this, this, this commonality, is that there needs to be a new way of thinking. You know, there needs to be a very clear change of dialogue, change of discussion, which uh, identifies the humanitarian as being part and representing the community, but also acknowledging the hierarchies of power which exist. And it's this middle ground, this liminal space, this niche where one can belong and not belong, where, where one has the right to challenge, that my own research has tried to define and I hope grounded in my own experiences, it's workable. So my, my interesting question would be, how practical is the space that I, I've been defining? And is there is there a space for this middle ground where one can belong and not belong that is legitimated by society and leg legitimated by the other stakeholders? Um, and, and that rather elusive middle ground is, is really the um, the main thrust of where where I have been focusing my research, and I, I do believe it, it exists, but I think we need have a new way of thinking. You know, this new way of working was defined and talked about in the World Humanitarian Summit, but we need now a completely new way of thinking of how to engage and and participate, and allow others to be capable of this participation, 
Um, so it, it's this capability approach that some philosophers, like Martha Nussbaum particularly, refers to. And um, you know, this space, in my mind, does exist, and I'd be interested to hear how practical it could be for those uh, those listening to it. So thank you. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you. And you have also elaborated on on these things in a in a recent book to be recommended. With this, uh, I have now Antonio De Lauri on the, on my list. Please. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Antonio from the Christian Mikkelsen Institute and the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. I just wanted to start from um, a comment that was made in the first intervention about the fact that there might be an exaggeration of, of the scale of the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Um, I think this could be in itself a different, a new, different topic for a kind of different discussion because uh, that's definitely not uh, the case only for Afghanistan. To understand exactly and to define um, the, the the scale and entities of crisis is uh, you know the models that are used are far from being perfect. Uh, on the other side, I was in uh, in Afghanistan in October, and uh, it's impossible to say whether the figures are correct. But what uh, one thing that I noticed is that there was definitely not the you know the the presence of organizations that I, I noticed the first time I went there, like in 2005. And this connect me to you know to the fact that uh, we often discuss uh, the presence or not of organizations uh, based on moral grounds, and I think that is uh, in a way in a position that is probably not honest in a way, and uh, even naive to some extent. Because uh, whether the large presence of NGOs and organizations are in one country or not uh, is also based on many uh, other factors that are beyond moral sense. Uh, and there are political forces uh, that push towards some countries and not others. And so it becomes also uh, a matter of discussion whether organizations should follow this kind of uh, you know, position from the political position from donors or they should create their own independence in terms of you know, where it is uh, more expressed uh, our, you know, our need. And because uh, based on, on the simply on the moral ground, the idea that uh, working with the Taliban, Taliban would be immoral, that probably would apply to most of the contests where humanitarian aid uh, is implemented. And, uh, for, and for the same reason, uh, we should then question, you know, the morality of donors, uh, which I would I wouldn't take for granted that uh, it's much more peaceful as an argument than uh, the morality of the Taliban. So it, it's just a, a matter of uh, including in, uh, the, the awareness uh, that uh, there are agendas that may put Afghanistan on the humanitarian map in some periods and not in others uh, that sometimes that go beyond you know, the, the, the will of organizations. And this is something that uh, we have to recognize. OK, thank you. Thanks a lot, Antonio. Next, I have uh, the classroom with Mustafa Kwistani. The class, I'm Mustafa Kuristani. Uh, I'm from Afghanistan. I have lived my entire life in Afghanistan and currently I'm studying human rights here in Bochum, Florida uh, University, Germany. Um, uh, all the class were just sitting for this meeting. We have we are done with the class. We were just waiting for this meeting. So I've got some comments. Uh, first, uh, uh, I can say that uh, we do not have to uh, we are not here to uh, differentiate between Taliban groups. They are all the same group. There is no moderate group between them. Uh, like uh, usually the 
public perceptionists like Kandahari group is the Kandahari perceptionists moderate, but they are not like that. We can see the supreme leader sitting in Kandahar and he is ordering executions. He is ordering a woman whipping in the public. And, uh, it's happening every day and every day. So uh, we do not have to give these fractions between Taliban. They are all same and they are so radical. Second thing I want to uh, talk about is that we do not have to give ransom to Taliban uh, for uh, uh, who, who are violating human rights. Uh, we are like when a criminal group is taking someone hostage and they are asking you for paying them money. The, the first thing police telling you is that you do not have to pay them money. We have to we have to deal with them through the logics. We have to deal with them as a criminal. So this is the same thing happening in Afghanistan. About the woman education and woman work, uh, we can say that uh, pretend like tomorrow the doors of the schools will be open. What we will see at the schools, what will be the curriculum, what will the students will receive after the, the schools are open? This is so important. We we are not our demand is not only uh, opening the uh, doors of the schools. We also need the content. We also need the content that Taliban are uh, currently working on. That right right now they are radicalizing the uh, curriculum for boys schools. And this is so. Uh, this is uh, so horrible. And uh, and the final comment I am saying is uh, that uh, I totally understand uh, the concerns Miss um, uh, Fatima Gilani has as she was uh, the red person so society hid in Afghanistan. She is worrying about the children that they are. They have uh, heard the defects, but she is not considering the young women who are in the torture cells right now in Afghanistan. She is not considering the Afghan military uh, uh, members or remained in Afghanistan and every day they are being killed arbitrarily by Taliban. So uh, if she is asking for interaction with Taliban, she also has to consider these things. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Khailani uh, will get the chance also to respond uh, in the end. And back to uh, Hugo Slim. Uh, and I'm very curious as to hear your, your thoughts on the debate. Christopher, thank you. And thank you all. It's been a, a real pleasure to listen to this. And thank you all for speaking in such um, good spirit. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to take on every issue that's raised, so I'll just make a general point. I mean, the first general point I want to make is that I usually resist these kind of binary uh, debates because I do feel that one of us only ever has a certain vision of the truth, sees a part of the truth, and actually usually truth lives in the middle somewhere. So I do uh, respect that. I don't expect to hold the whole truth. I expect it to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I'll just, I can't pick up because of time all Mukesh's great points, but I would just make one point um, about his gesture, the immorality of sort of gesture morality. And that's not my intention at all. My intention in saying that the West should uh, disengage in some way uh, very seriously and really object to what's going on is not about trying to persuade the Taliban to change. I, I don't, you know, I share your view on that, Mukesh, that the kind of, um, and I am a theologian, the kind of theological mindset they have, then 
they're not worried if you agree or not, they'll just do their thing. So it's not an instrument to persuade the Taliban, it's actually an important um, political commitment of, you know, one's own. It's not about influencing another, it's about, you know, deciding what is right for you. And, and Fatima, just to, you know, thank you, in a sense, I felt you were the judge in this, in this court and very compassionately and mercifully you found me guilty. And, and that's, that's fine. So, but I think, first of all, with your, your point about your, your Afghanistan's geography, I, I really sympathize. It's often, you know, geography which makes life so difficult. I, I don't think that's going to go away. And I think if I'm honest, one of the reasons that Western governments will probably decide to try and stay in some way is because politically and espionage wise, they want to stay there like they always have. So that, you know, that great game that you live in will continue, I think, in different ways. And, you know, I hear mixed mixed reasons in the British government about, you know, why we want to be there, you know, that sort of thing. So that's sadly your geography and it's very it's really difficult i also really hear what you said about you know where was all the morality before why is suddenly people becoming moral now when they never were before and using moral arguments and i sympathize with that too yeah, and you're saying being there is the only way don't leave us alone so you know two things on that first of all you know if you're the european like me you know with governments who give aid money and stuff you get a very mixed message from people you get the message that for God's sake, go away. You've done nothing but ruin our countries and interfered for years. Come back, you know, and it's a it's a confusing message. OK, so for us in this sort of part of the world, as the geopolitics changes, we have to make decisions about that, actually. And we have to say, do we want to keep sort of in this yo-yo relationship or actually do we realize that self-determination is that self-determination is a lonely business for societies and in fact you know everybody's tried to interfere and change Afghanistan in the way that perhaps you and I might like it to change and it hasn't worked so maybe you have to do quite a lot of it alone okay and if we look historically about how states are born and freedom is made it is quite a lonely business very often and you know that much better than me but also, if you listen carefully to what I'm saying, I'm not, and this is for Mukesh and you, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here to take one side. But if you listen to what I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, in fact, there must be a way for accompaniment in this process. So I don't want to leave you alone. I don't want to sort of stop engaging. But I think it's got to be a new way. So that's why I agree with um, Alistair slightly. We've got to find a new model of accompaniment. And in my mind, it's not that big humanitarian machine. I think it's about supporting agencies like yours, people around to self-determine and, and live that struggle. So I hope I'm not saying abandonment. I'm saying, you know, change the way aid happens, not business as usual, and find new ways to support people. And if I go back to the purpose of my original blog, which is probably why I'm sitting here, my concern at that moment several weeks ago was to you know, make a noise and ring a bell very loudly so that the humanitarian community did not sleepwalk into another massive appalling compromise with the Taliban. And that's what I was dreading at the time. And I'm really glad to see that, that is not happening. And I really hope that some new form of accompaniment happens. Perfect. 
What do you say to this, Mukesh? I think it's great, and uh, Hugo has been a, a great sport because, uh, as you said, uh, his his beliefs are complex. Because as a theologian and philosopher, uh, he's bound to hold uh, contradictory opinions at the same time in his head. That goes with the territory, especially in Oxford. But I'm grateful for him being a uh, sport in in this uh, in this debate. Now, uh, I think a couple of points really. Uh, one is that uh, yes, we need this new humanitarian uh, idea or uh, something there. But I wouldn't call it, as Alistair did, the middle ground. To me, the middle ground is absolutely not the place to be in. It sounds to me the sort of place uh, you would be in a traffic where and you get hit by cars coming from uh, uh, both directions. That is not the new humanitarianism that we want. And neither is it they fudge between black and white. Because that leaves us in a that would leave us in a worse position than we are now. We were already in a gray uh, area with many uh, kind of pink lines and red lines and God knows how many how many lines, um, uh, including red tapes, uh, you know, so on. No, I'm I'm looking for a new morality, and I don't want a black and white morality. I want a morality that uh, a, a humanitarian morality that will be courageous that will uh, be practical and that above all else will depend on and be inspired and informed by the, the subjects that we are trying uh, to help. And for me, that morality, humanitarian morality, means trying to do good while calling out the evil. To do good silently is not the right way of doing humanitarian aid in my new humanitarianism, if you like. Humanitarians, if they believe in their values, which they pronounce, uh, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, they uh, they need to, to do it uh, in a way where they're able to stand up and actually say it loudly. Yeah. So that's one thing. The second thing is that very definitely that also means getting away from this uh, computerized way of judging people's pain. It reminds me of, of uh, two patients with headaches, uh, uh, you know, where uh, and one person would say, oh, well, my headache is very bad. Another person would say, oh, my headache is really bad. Now, I as a doctor have to decide whose headache is worse and whose headache. Well, I'm sorry, both of them are carrying their headaches in their head and to each of them, their headache is uh, the valid, the real, the most important, headache. It is not for me to judge. It is not for me to compare the pain of Afghans with the pain of uh, um, uh, Ethiopian, uh, sorry, of a uh, Turkish uh, earthquake. Uh, it hurts and it hurts them most and they are the best judges of judging that. So the humanitarian reductionist system we are under in, under the self-serving a system that, by the way, through which I made a great and uh, uh, generous career as well, I have to uh, admit, whereby we stand and judge the pain of others and then decide you're more worthy, you're less worthy. I'll give you ten dollars. I'll give you five dollars. And by the way, here is the needs assessment formula and the mortality rates and the morbidity rates and et cetera, et cetera. Huh? That's what we're in now. And I don't hear anybody speaking up against that. I'm not interested in a mathematical 
humanitarianism and fairness on the basis of this absurd. Uh, and I speak as a scientist, I speak as an epidemiologist who, who knows how to measure life and death, who spent a lifetime measuring, measuring life and death. Now, the new humanitarian morality, if, if you wish, does not depend on those kinds of calculations. It's intrinsic to the morality of being human. And now, how that is translated is in a number of principles which I've written out, new principles, which I won't mention them here, don't worry. But I was saying we have to get away from the humanitarian principles of humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and all the stuff that uh, was written by ICRC lawyers. I didn't say Red Cross, Red Crescent, uh, I said ICRC. And that ICRC style humanitarian principles, which first the Red Cross movement absorbed as a health Red Cross Red Crescent, and then the whole world absorbed, is I think no longer valid. So we need completely new set of principles. And that is, I think, if there was a successor to this uh, seminar, we would be going. We have to invent that new morality with a new set of principles. That is about a million miles from the current set of principles and the current way of thinking and mindsets, which are reductionist and computerized and thoughtless and immoral. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ailana, please. Well, I want to make it very clear because I think it was misunderstood. One is the question of recognition or not recognition of the country. Without the right procedures, recognizing any country will be wrong. It has a procedures, it has to be followed, it has to fulfill those criteria. In short, separating people from governments, because people of Afghanistan should not be left alone. Life of all Afghan matters. But my point was that when politicians can have a visa and go travel everywhere when it comes to politics, when it, when it comes to humanitarian, a sick person cannot travel. This is not acceptable for me. It is not that no one get out of Afghanistan. They do get out of Afghanistan. They get visas and they go everywhere. So, but when it comes to a sick person, to um, a vulnerable person, they are stuck. This was the point that no life, not just the life of one Afghan, against the other Afghan, but the life of no human being against another human being is less or more. They're all matters. What I'm saying is that the people of Afghanistan should not be left alone. I'm, my point is that the people of Afghanistan have been always uh, victims because everyone trended towards politics and the uh, people of Afghanistan were forgotten. So this time we should not make the same mistake. Thank you. Thank you so much. And with this, I would like to close this meeting. Thanks so much uh, for your contributions. Thanks to, for the participation and patience of those who have also listened in. And looking forward to seeing how this uh, develops. It is certainly a difficult question and a highly important situation for humanitarian organizations to consider to meet, discuss and clarify the arguments. And I hope that we have uh, somewhat also contributed to that with this uh, discussion. So thank you all and have a wonderful day forward.